I will uh, always remember the summer before my freshman year of high school because um, at that time, there was nothing in my life that was more important than basketball. Basketball was everything. There was not a day that went by that I did not practice basketball, play basketball, work on basketball, uh, or watch basketball. I used to watch old video of UCLA basketball games and, and dream about the day that I got to go and play. And, and most, some of you didn't even know about my career at UCLA, did you? Um, and, and everything for me was basketball. And so uh, the summer before your freshman year, you go to summer basketball camp, right? And, and it's your first time at the big high school with the new coach and all the kids from other schools that you've played against all these years. And now you're going to be playing with these guys and, and high expectations and being recruited by these other high schools and picking the school I was going to go to and all that kind of stuff, ready to go, but terrified on my first day. Now, I'll never forget this young man that I met that day. He was not just new like the the rest of us were new, but he was new to the area. He had lived in New York City and had just moved out to uh, Orange County where I went to school. And uh, he grew up playing on the, on the streets in New York. And he played different than the rest of us. Uh, to this day, I will say he's the most gifted basketball player I have ever been on the court with. And I've been on the court with the Grace Fellowship basketball team. So, yeah. <laughs> If you ever went to our games, you know why that's funny. But anyways, um, uh, this kid, uh, we'll just call him Jim. That's not his real name, but in case he hears this, I don't want to be embarrassed. This kid, Jim, uh, he was five foot eight, and he dunked behind his head with both hands. Now, if you don't understand what it's like to try to dunk a basketball, I spent my entire basketball career working on trying to dunk, and every time I would slam it up against the side of the rim and land on my back. This kid was half my size, and he flew through the air, and, and he would just do these wild windmill dunks. He was 14 years old, five foot eight. I'd never seen anything like this. He was the quickest guy I had ever seen on a basketball court. He was, he was, um, he just knew how to do everything. He had a great shot. There was nothing he couldn't do. And, and we all played together. Whatever grade you were in with the varsity, we all practiced together in the summer. And uh, there wasn't a guy on the varsity team that could guard this incoming freshman. He was a spectacular, spectacular player. And by... Our sophomore year, he was no longer in the program because he could not play well enough to be a part of our, our program. See, individually, one-on-one, -on -one, he probably could beat Michael Jordan. But on a team, he was absolutely worthless. He had no idea how the defense worked and how we were rotating. He didn't understand when you were supposed to pick up the other guy's man or when you were supposed to lay back. On the offense, there was this rotation offense that we ran, and he had no idea what to do. He would just stand there and wave his arms and hope somebody gave him the ball. Now, if you gave him the ball, he could do something spectacular. But the coaches just couldn't bear with it anymore. And by the time our sophomore year came around, he was cut. The best basketball player I've ever been on the court with. Now, I also played with some other guys who, who were short and dumpy and spectacularly good. 
Guys who had no quickness, guys who had no height, guys who didn't have extraordinary strength, but there was just something about how they understood the game and how they worked together as a team, and, and they made our team better, and we won games because of those guys. It wasn't just the 6'8 guys. It wasn't just the guys who could fly through the air. It was the guys who actually understood the team concept and worked together, regardless of their athleticism, to improve our chances of winning. For the last 13 weeks now, we've been talking about how, as Christians, we're better together. And, and I've come at this from every angle, and if you've been here for this whole series or been listening online, you know that we've looked at this from every possible angle. And here's what we've come up with. One way or another, no matter how we look at it, we always come to the same conclusion, and that is God did not design people to do life alone. It's absolutely clear in the scripture, it's absolutely clear in all of our experience that when we try to do life alone, it can't be done. And the Christian life absolutely cannot be done alone. He did not create us to be individuals. He created us to be part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ. Every one of us a part, every one of us a piece, every one of us with a role to play. Because God understands it's all part of his creation that we're better together. And you, you just open your Bible to Genesis and you, you go to page two. After all of the creation, God creates this and it's good. He creates that and it's good. He creates this and it's good. He creates that and it's good. And on the sixth day, he creates man. And he says, and it was very good. And for the first time, as God's creation comes all together with the crescendo of man, he says, it's very good. And then you turn the page, and in chapter 2, halfway through, it says, oh, by the way, there was something that God said was not good. It was not good for man to be alone. That, that, that just the idea of a human being trying to do a solitary life is absolutely impossible. And so God made from this man a woman, and that couple became one. And they became a family. They had children, and that family became a clan, and that clan eventually became a nation. And God called a man named Abram in in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, Abram, I have a plan for you. I want you to follow me, and if you follow me, I will make you a great what? Nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. And from this great nation, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so just as God promised, the Messiah comes through the line of Abraham and this great nation called Israel, the people of God. And the Messiah comes, and the Messiah is the one who is the blessing to all the nations of the earth, just as God promised. And, and when the Messiah comes, Jesus... And he begins his public ministry. What is the first thing that he does? He recruits a team. Now, now think about that for a second. I mean, there, has there ever been anyone more competent than Jesus? Has there ever been anyone more powerful? Has there ever been anyone who understood the mission better than Jesus? Has there ever been anyone more equipped? Like if anybody could ever do it alone, it's going to be Jesus, right? And yet Jesus, who is 100% God, is also 100% man. And as a man, he has to do life together with others. 
And so he creates a team, and out of this team is born something in the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit fills them called the church. And the church has been used by God to change the world ever since. Listen, 99% of the time, great challenges require great teamwork. There's just almost no examples of something that a person just solitarily was able to do alone that was world-changing. Great challenges require great teamwork. And the challenge that we face as God's church is certainly a great challenge. He has equipped us and called us as his church to be the light of the world. We've said we're supposed to be the hands of Jesus. We're supposed to be the feet of Jesus. We're supposed to be the vocal cords of Jesus. We're supposed to be the one who delivers the resources of Jesus. We're supposed to be the ones who go into the darkest of darkness and bring light because it's the light of Jesus. That's a challenge. It's a big challenge. He's called us to carry the good news of the gospel to all the ends of the earth. That's a big challenge. See, it may be a big challenge, but it's the only plan God has. He he uses his church to love the unlovely because nobody else will. He uses his church to comfort the afflicted. He uses us to challenge the status quo in our society. He uses his church to be the ones who carry the torch for social justice, to to see the downtrodden and the broken and reach out to them. It's through us that he feeds the hungry. It's through us that he cares for the broken. It's for us that he befriends the lonely. It's through us that he visits prisoners. It's through us that he clothes the naked. It's through us that he encourages the brokenhearted. His church is his whole plan. We are how Jesus does ministry. God does all of it, but he does it through his church. And so as we wrap up this series called Better Together, I just want to get you one more glimpse of that. And it's going to take you a minute. So go to the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles with you, find the book of Nehemiah. Now, if you have an electronic form of the Bible, it's easy. If not, then good luck finding the book of Nehemiah. It's actually in the Old Testament, uh, just a little bit before you get to Psalms and Proverbs and all of that. Find the book of Nehemiah, and as you're going there, let me paint the picture. It is around 445, 450 B.C. at this time. Um, Because of her sin, Israel has suffered multiple calamities. Over and over, God has said, if you will trust me and obey me, I will bless you. But if you will turn against me and have other gods before me, you will face the consequences of those choices, and the consequences of those choices are never good. And so Israel has found themselves being uh, chastised by God as a nation. And they've been invaded multiple times. And their people have been carried away to other lands. And we find, you know, if you just remember your world history class, which you probably don't, I know I don't. um, But if you just think of what you learn in world history, at this time in the Babylonian Empire is sort of in control of that whole Middle Eastern area. And, And they have taken over Jerusalem. They've gone into the city of David, the, the, the city of, of God, the, the focal point of worship of God's people, and they've absolutely annihilated and destroyed it. And there's this guy named Nehemiah who was a Jew, but he was born in Babylon because they've been in Babylon now for generations. And Nehemiah has, is a slave, and he's been so... Um, 
effective at all the work that they've given him that he's found himself promoted up the ranks even in slavery so that he is now the cupbearer to the king. And the king is Artaxerxes. And so he and the king have, have this great relationship. Yeah, the cupbearer to the king is the one that is the most trusted by the king. And so they, they spend time together. They have their meals together. They, they develop a relationship. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, you find Nehemiah's brother and some others coming to him from Jerusalem. And they say, he says, how are things going with our people? And they say, oh my gosh, it's worse than you could ever imagine. Our people are scattered. They have no leadership. They have no, they have no sort of place in society. The walls of the city of Jerusalem have been completely broken down. All of the gates have been burned with fire. The city has been ransacked and destroyed. There's no worship happening there. The people of God are not the people of God. They're just a scattered group. And when Nehemiah hears this, his heart breaks. Knowing that God had such a great plan for Israel, if only Israel had followed him. And his heart breaks. And so with this broken heart, Nehemiah falls on his knees and begins to cry out to God for his people. And he doesn't know what he's asking for. He doesn't know what is needed. It just pictures Jerusalem with the walls broken down. Guys, we don't even know what to think of this. City walls. We don't have city walls. There, if you didn't have city walls, you were dead. Your city, your city would be ransacked. Enemy invaders could come easily. So you had to have these great walls. Every city was fortified. And Jerusalem was no longer fortified. And, and so he just began to pray and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And then he went before the king one day to do his job and he was bringing him some wine as he describes it. And, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but basically he walks in with a tray and the king looks at him and goes, dude, what is your problem? I look at you every day. You're always happy. You're, you're a source of light in this whole place. Today, you walk in. You're frowning. You're obviously depressed. You're angry. What is the deal? I have never seen you sad before. Why? The king says this. Why are you sad in my presence? And I did some research, and I found out that in Babylon, it was literally illegal to be sad in the presence of the king. And it was punishable by death. Why are you sad in my presence? And now Nehemiah has a choice. He can either tell him, oh, no, no, I'm not sad, you know, do some little, uh, you know, jokes and that sort of thing. Or he could tell him the truth. And he looks the king in the eyes, his knees knocking. And he says, king, I'm sad because the walls of God's city have been broken down. The worship has been wiped out. My people are scattered and everything is in desolation. That's why I'm sad. And the king looks at him and says, what can I do to help? So he takes a deep breath and he goes, well, you could give me a gigantic vacation from my job and you could send me to Jerusalem and let me take over a project to rebuild the city that your, that your country has desolated. And by the way, I'm going to need you to pay for it. I'm going to need you to buy the wood. I'm going to need you to buy the bricks. I'm going to need you to buy the tools and all the things that we need. 
And the king says, done. And off he goes. It's an amazing story, even if it just ends right there. You know, it is amazing what can happen when we pray and then get up and do something. It's amazing what could happen if we just realize how powerful God is. And Pastor Dave was talking about this the last couple of weeks. If we could just understand the power of God, the love of God, the strength of God in our lives, and we would actually, when our heart breaks about something, instead of going to all the sources that we typically run to, whether it's, whether it's uh, you know, uh, alcohol or some diversion or, or some relationship. How often do we run to our friends and bend their ear about what's going on when we haven't even talked to God about what's going on? It's amazing what happens when God's people pray and then get off their hind end and do something to join God in what he's doing. It's amazing what can happen. There's a lady I know. She was heartbroken because she saw that there was a homeless encampments on the riverbed. And so one day she just got some food and went over and started handing it out to people. And it turned into a gigantic ministry now where every single day she and a whole team of people are at the riverbed and they're giving them clothes and they're giving them blankets and they're giving them support and they're giving them food and they're getting them uh, moved in the direction that they need to go. It's just amazing how lives are being changed because this one person saw something, had a broken heart, prayed, and then did something. There's some guys I know who were just burdened by the fact that there's a lot of people who, who just have jobs that need to be done. The car breaks or the, the water heater goes out or there's an electrical problem in the house or whatever. And they kept hearing about this and they thought, you know what? Uh, we have all these skills and we're retired and we have tools and we know. How about if we just start going and fixing people's stuff for free? And they just started hearing about these things and then going into people's homes and repairing their stuff and, and putting new brakes on the cars and all of that kind of stuff just to help take care of people who weren't in a position to do it for themselves. There's a couple that I know who every summer, yeah, I've known them for a long time and I, and I can't think of a time that they ever went on a vacation. But every summer they put their own money together and they fly to Africa and they spend the summer traveling around Africa to the most impoverished people on the planet, serving them and teaching them and sharing the gospel and changing lives. I know this guy is a retired school teacher and now he has a job where he doesn't get paid. He works with kids who have trouble reading and he teaches them to read and he just tutors kids for free. And if you try to pay him, he refuses to take the money. He just counts it a privilege to be able to build his life into these kids and love them and share Jesus with them and turn illiterate children into kids who make A's in school because they love to read. And that's what he does with his time because that's what he's gifted at. I could just go on and on about the people of Grace Fellowship. That's the kind of stuff that is happening right around you where people's heart begins to break and they say, what can I do? And they pray and they act. And God does something 
amazing. Anyway, I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about Nehemiah. Let's get back to Nehemiah's story. By the time he arrives in Jerusalem, he discovers that the situation is even worse than he heard. The whole city is in ruins. Beginning with the wall, all of the gates are broken and burned and gone. And there's gates like every hundred yards around the city, the walled city of Jerusalem. And all of them have to be redone. The wall is completely destroyed. Um, and so Nehemiah, as a stranger, as someone they've never seen, gathers the Jews in Jerusalem and rallies them and gives them a vision and says, guys, you know what? This is a city of God. And this is a shame. It's a shame. It's a blight on the face of God. God is being mocked. God is being dishonored because we have allowed this city to be broken down and we did it with our own sin. We need to repent and the people are called to repentance. And then he calls them to work. And he says, let's gather together and rebuild the city wall. Now, that's chapter one and two of Nehemiah. See, I, that's the fastest you've ever heard me get through two chapters, okay? Now, we're going to go to chapter three. Now, let me just tell you, if you've never read the book of Nehemiah, chapter one is fascinating, chapter two is incredibly interesting, and everyone skips chapter three. I'll bet you there's not five people in this room who have read Nehemiah chapter three word for word. Because when you start reading it, you realize it is names you can't pronounce and places you can't pronounce. And the entire chapter, which is 32 verses, is only names and places you can't pronounce. And so what do you do when you come across that in your Bible reading? You sort of sneeze and hope the page moves and you move on to the next page, right? Because who wants to read that? That's the meaningless stuff. So guys, just in case you didn't catch my tongue in cheek, this is the word of God. There's no meaningless stuff. So I'm going to read to you 32 verses so that you, when you get to heaven and, it, and you say, I, sh I deserve some jewels in my crown, you can say, I, I read Nehemiah chapter 3, okay? And then th there's like a whole special section in heaven for people who've read Nehemiah 3, okay? <laughs> that may or may not be true, uh, just so you know. Okay, here we go, and it's going to go fast, right? And I'm going to show you how to do this because these, these names we can't pronounce, they really can be tough, so let me show you how to do this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Now as now the sons of Hazemlema built the fish gate. They had its beams and hung its door with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, made repairs. And next to him, Meshlemelema, the son of Barabla, the son of Mechablabla, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs. Uh, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Joida, the son of Pasha, the son of Meshulamabah, the son of uh, somebody, repaired the old gate and laid its beams uh, and hung its doors with its bolts and its spars. Next to them, 
uh, Metablabah and the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Menaralabahite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah also made repairs to the official seat of the governor and of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Herablabah, of the goldsmiths made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphalabah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem made repairs. And next to them, Jedediah, the son of Harumph, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of something that begins with an H, made repairs. Melchizedek, the son of Hiram, the uh, Haram, the Hashub, <laughs> the son of Path of somebody, repaired another section of the tower of furnaces. And next to him, Shalom, the son of Halalalalalu, the official of... This is how people began speaking in tongues, by the way. Next, the, <laughs> the official in half the district of Jerusalem made repairs. He and his daughters... <laughs> I, that, that also may or may not be true, sorry. Um, <laughs> continuing, uh, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors and its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits and the wall of refuse gate. How you guys doing? You with me? Okay, you got all these names? All right, good. Here we go. Malkajabalblah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth something, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and the wall of the pool of Shelah, the king's garden, as far as the steps that descended from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as the point opposite the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool in the house of the mighty men. And after him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Kela, carried out repairs for their district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bevi, the son of Henadad, official of the other half of the district of Kela. <gasps> Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory of the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, uh, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, required another repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. After him, the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashab carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Mesed, blah, 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 son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. After him, Benmi, the son of, uh, no, excuse me, Benui, I think I mispronounced that. The son of Hinnadad repaired another section of the house of Azariah as far as the angle, as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the, who became a podiatrist, the son of Parash made repairs. Sorry, these are... Not biblical, these references I'm making. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great 
projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest carried out repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekinah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shiliamiah, the Hanan, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants carried out repairs. So, verse 1, it's a wall, it's a wall job. It's masons. What you need is masons, right? Guys who know how to build walls. So, verse 1, in his pointy hat and his robes, with a trowel in his hand, is the high priest. And he's building the wall. In verse 2, it says, the men of Jericho were building the wall. Jericho is 15 miles away from Jerusalem. They're not even part of the city. Verse 8 tells us that there are goldsmiths who instead of doing their work on jewelry and gold are now doing masonry work. It also tells us in verse 8 that there are perfumers because I know that God said to himself, if I'm going to have a really good wall, I need perfumers, right? <laughs> and, and as the chapter goes on, you have everybody from high-ranking government officials to absolute nobodies, and they're all around the city, everyone responsible for a section of the wall or a gate. There's even a guy who has no sons. Did you notice this? And he just gets a couple of tool belts and hands them to his daughters. And they're the only women mentioned in this whole thing. Yay, women, right? And, and, and everybody chips in. And the work isn't easy. They're under constant threat of attack from their enemies. Listen, all of the uh, warring uh, nations around them couldn't care less about Jerusalem. It's just a byword. It's just a broken down old ruin. It's like a ghost town. But when they come and start building the wall, they seem to be preparing for warfare. Now, the other nations wake up. And as you continue reading, you will find that the other nations begin to threaten them. And every day, there are attacks and threats of attacks. And so they're building literally with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they build day and night. And they work that way. They literally have each other's backs. While one man is working with the trowel, the other is standing behind him with a sword, watching for attack. And that's the situation in which they have to rebuild this gigantic, gigantic, many, many miles long city wall. 
And if you manage to hang in there in the book of Nehemiah and get all the way to chapter 6, verse 15, you will find that it says, in 52 days they completed the task. <laughs> Have you ever seen Caltrans try to fill a pothole? <laughs> These guys rebuilt Jerusalem in 52 days. Restored it to its splendor as a city. Now there was still a lot that had to be done inside. But now the walls were secure. There was a gate everywhere there was supposed to be a gate. And there was a guard on every gate. And they were ready to reestablish themselves as a great city. And the, and the center of worship of the one true God. And that's exactly what they did. And it took them 52 days. And that was the beginning of a new season for the people of God. And they were able to return to the city of David to reestablish their community and their worship and begin living out their role as the people of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Remember all those names in chapter 3? I'm sure you remember them all. <laughs> let me ask you this. Which one of those people was unimportant in the process? Not a single one. Every person mentioned and all those that were not mentioned, every person who pitched in, every person who held a sword, every person who held a trial, every person who delivered lunch to the workers, every person who motivated and encouraged them, every person who prayed for them, every person that was a part of the project in any way was absolutely important to what God wanted to do. Now you might go, look, they're just building a wall. I mean, seriously, who cares? And they probably just threw the thing together. I mean, in 52 days, the thing probably fell down. You can go to Jerusalem today and look at this wall. 2,500 years old. And every one of them, important. Every one of them brought what they had. They each did what they knew how to do. And when they didn't know how to do something that needed to be done, they stretched until they learned. And they did what needed to be done. And they realized that the calling of God upon them was far more important than any individual plans they had. The goldsmith stopped smithing. The perfumer stopped making perfume. The, 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 the priest stopped being a priest. The governor stopped being governors. Everybody picked up a sword and a trowel and went to work and changed the world. I've been trying for the last three months to dispel this common myth that some of us are important in the body of Christ and some of us are more like spectators or just along for the ride. So I want you to listen carefully because this is my last sermon on this subject for a while. If you are a Christian, that is, if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't care what church you're part of, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, if the Holy Spirit abides in your life, you, you, you have an indispensable role to play in God's plan on this earth. And if you are a part of this local church, if, if you consider this your church family, if you, if you buy into what we buy into and, and, and you're on the mission that we're on, you need to understand this. You have an indispensable role in God's plan that only this church can carry out. 
So there is a role. God planted this church because this church has a specific personality and a specific place in his plan. And he put you in this church because you have a, per, a specific personality, a specific place in his plan, specific giftedness, specific resources, specific uh, experiences and wisdom and all of that kind of stuff. And he put you in this church because he plans to change the world through this church and you are an indispensable part of what God is trying to do to change the world. And don't think that for a second I'm not going to mention VBS today. Because <laughs> you know what? Ricky said VBS begins tomorrow. Never listen to Ricky. <laughs> VBS does not begin tomorrow. VBS begins today at 2 o'clock. So, so I, whatever, I, I, don't, I don't care if you're a perfumer or a goldsmith. Grab a trowel and grab a sword and get here at 2 o'clock. Because there's a role for you to play. And you know what? If, if you can't be here, uh, all kidding aside, like, it's not, I'm not just inviting you to pray. I am charging you in the name of Jesus Christ Amen. to pray. See, we can put on the best program in the world. God can bring thousands of kids and we, we can have a great staff and we can do everything right and we could just do an amazing job and nobody's heart could get changed. Or we could just be fumbling old us, goldsmiths and perfumers, trying to do something that we're not really equipped to do and the Holy Spirit gets in there and touches kids' life and the whole world gets changed. And, 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 and if your role is not to be here and be a part of the staff, then I'm challenging you. And you do with it what you want, you know. I'm not going to ask you about it. You could just answer to God. But get up early this week and you pray. Pray that kids' lives would be touched. Pray that God would infuse workers with unbelievable grace and patience and love and, and energy. Pray for what God is trying to do. Every one of us has a role to play. So if you can't be here, you can pray. And you know what? Maybe some of you, seriously now, I'm not joking around. Like some of you, we're all gifted in different ways. We're part of the body of Christ. Some of you have money. Blow the dust off your checkbook and write a check and finance this thing. If that's what God's calling you to do. But do something because God has put you here for just such a time as this. Amen. Every one of us has a role to play, and together we can join God in changing the world. I'll close with this. Uh, February 2nd, 2002, I remember this day like it was yesterday. February 2nd, 2002. It was a big day in my life. It was a Sunday. And I preached really fast. I know that's hard for you to believe. Look it up. It's true. I preached really fast. We finished early. I locked up the building, pushed people out, locked up the building, and got home as quickly as I could. And when I got home, I sat down. I grabbed the remote control, and I turned on the TV because it was Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> and I was born a Rams fan. My family had season tickets. I grew up a few miles from the stadium. I was born a Ramsand. When they moved to St. Louis, my heart was torn out, and I hated them for about two seasons. 
And then they got this guy named Kurt Warner. And he was this great quarterback and he loved Jesus. And I said, okay, I like the Rams again. <laughs> and I went back to my lost love. And it was 2002. And the Rams were a 14-point favorite in the Super Bowl. You're never a 14-point favorite in the Super Bowl. Because they were playing this little upstart team that really nobody heard of any of their players. And they were already had been in the Super Bowl. They had the reigning MVP and Kurt Warner was going to be the MVP again that year. And, and they had all these guys. I, I remember when they introduced them, it was awesome. They come running out of the tunnel, you know, and there's fog and fanfare. And they introduced them one at a time, you know. Coming out of the tunnel, number 13, all-pro MVP quarterback, Kurt Warner. And he comes running out. And behind him, the best running back in the NFL, Marshall Falk. And he comes running out. And their receivers, Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt, these guys are Hall of Famers. Amazing. Their, their team was called the greatest show on turf. And they were playing this kind of unknown little upstart team called the uh, New England Patriots. <laughs> and they had this, they had a great quarterback, but he got hurt. And so they had this backup quarterback nobody ever heard of. He hardly played at Michigan. He was a sixth round draft pick. Nobody heard of this guy. This, this skinny kid. His name was uh, Tom Brady. <laughs> And here's what I remember. All of those Rams came out one at a time with their hands in the air, charged up and ready to go. And then it got quiet in the stadium. And the PA announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, the New England Patriots. And hand in hand, every guy on the Patriots, coaching staff, trainers, players, walked out to midfield for the coin toss together. And I said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> and by the time it was over, the New England Patriots had won their first of what became many Super Bowls. And I went back to crying over my Rams. <laughs> Guys, everybody, everybody to this day agrees. The Rams had by far the best players. And the Patriots were the best team. It's amazing what God could do when we join hands and we walk out together. It's amazing what God can do. May he do it through us. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just want to once again lift up and glorify your name. It's all about you. It's not about us. It's certainly not about any one of us as an individual. It, it's about what you can do through us as a body. And so, Father, for every person who in the body of Christ, the fingers and the toes and the eyes and the ears and the pancreases, we pray, God, that you would use us for exactly what you designed us for. We pray, Father, that we would understand our vital role in what you want to do, and yet we would not overestimate our importance. 
We pray, Father, that you would help us to put aside petty differences and and things that might hold us away from one another, differences in age or gender or race or interests or any of that kind of stuff. And Lord, may we just hold hands with whoever you put next to us. Give us a sword in one hand. Give us a trial in the other. And may we, Father, be used by you to change the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.